The reading starts at Esther 5. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall, facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Then the king asked, What is it, Queen Esther? What's your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king, together with Haman, come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. Bring Haman at once, the king said, so that we may do what Esther asks. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. As they were drinking wine, the king again asked Esther, Now what is your position? It will be given you. And what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Esther replied, My petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favor, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request... Let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits, but when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he, showed, that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. Calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave, and she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction, as long as I see that Jew, Mordecai, sitting at the king's gate. His wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, Have a gallows built, 75 feet high, and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go with the king to the dinner and be happy. This suggestion delighted Haman, and he had the gallows built. That night, the king could not sleep, so he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this, the king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. The king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows he had erected for him. His attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. When Haman entered, the king asked him, What should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought to himself, Who is there that the king would rather honor than me? So he answered the king, 
For the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn, and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor, and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, This is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He rode Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, This is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Afterwards, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief and told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. His advisers and his wife Zeresh said to him, Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther. And as they were drinking wine on that second day, the king again asked, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, O king, and if it pleases your majesty, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold for destruction and slaughter and annihilation. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet, because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is the man who has dared to do such a thing? Esther said, The adversary and the enemy is this vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in a rage, left his wine, and went out to the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, A gallows 75 feet high stands by Haman's house. He had it made for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. The king said, hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. Well, welcome to Esther. If you've uh, missed the last uh, couple of weeks, it's an interesting story. Uh, Let me add my welcome. My name is Matt Fuller, minister pastor here. And uh, great to see you. Let's pray for God's help as we look at this together. Our loving Father, this is a strange story to our ears. Please, would you help us understand it? 
and more than that, would your spirit take what's here, apply it to our hearts, so we would live for you. Amen. Now, uh, somewhat unusually, uh, tonight we're largely thinking about clothes, which is odd, um, and it's not that I'm some kind of biblical gok one. Uh, see, none of you would have thought I knew him, would you? I don't know him. Um, I know nothing about clothes or how to dress, clearly. Um, but this, book of the, uh, this part of the book of Esther, it, it, all of a sudden robes become very important. Uh, they're quite significant, actually, in what's going on here in the story and uh, in this part of the book. Royal robes, not just any robes, not bathrobes, surgical robes, clerical robes. No, royal robes. Robes which signify honor and status um, and uh, respect. Those sort of robes. Now, back in the, uh, these ancient times, they would have been purple because that was the most expensive color there was. You had to kill a thousand shellfish to get a purple robe. So, ooh, you know, you're quite wealthy. But even today, you know, robes, they, they carry significance with them. So state opening of parliament, the queen will arrive looking quite good. Not often you see her having a bad day. But uh, then she'll go into the robing room in the Palace of Westminster and get on the state robes, of course. And off she'll go to, uh, to read out, you know, my government will. And, um, uh, and everyone respects her greatly. And the robes are a, sign- a signifier of that. So having royal robes, it's a symbol of honor, of status. And I get, there's a sense in which the question behind or um, thrown up uh, by the text, these, these chapters is, how do you get robes? How do you get royal robes? How do you get honor? Status, glory. How do you get those things? And essentially the answer is you can't grasp for them. You have to be given them. You can't grasp after royal robes. You have to be given them by the king. That's where we're going. Well, look, we've had a week off from Esther, so let me remind you a little bit. It is a story then of how God delivers his people. That's what the book of Esther is about. God delivers, saves his people, um, even though he doesn't appear to be there. So the distinctive feature of the book of Esther is, as Mark mentioned, God's God's not there. God is not mentioned, not by name, not by activity. There's no prayer, there's no worship, there's no thanksgiving, there's no praising. There's no religious activity in the book as such. God is airbrushed out. And again, this is not because the author just made a mistake. Oh, I'm so embarrassed, I've forgotten to put God in the Bible in my book and all my friends are going to think I'm such a fool. It's not that, it's deliberate. God is deliberately removed from the surface of this story, which has a number of little impacts. Uh, The first is, Esther doesn't just throw out its application. It's not like the Sermon on the Mount, which we've um, just finished looking at. When Jesus says, do not be anxious, you don't have to sit there thinking, wow, I wonder what the point is. Um, It's do not be anxious. It's kind of there on the surface. With Esther, it it doesn't just throw out its application. You have to think. What's, what's going on here? Why has why he written it like that? And so it plays in your head. It messes with your head a little bit. Certainly if you're preaching it, it really does. Um, and you think about it lots. And that's part of the genius of the book. It makes you think. God has given us this story to keep us thinking about it throughout the week, hopefully. Uh, so it doesn't serve up its application. I mean, the second thing, I think the main reason probably is, God is removed from the surface to remind us that 
Even when he seems, even when he seems absent, he is at work. God's silence is not his absence. Just because we can't see him doesn't mean he's not at work. He is, which is wonderfully reassuring for us because most of us don't live our lives like much of the rest of, say, the Old Testament. We don't live our lives, oh, look, there's a burning bush with a voice. Oh, look, there's the sea parting. Oh, look, here's a load of plagues coming down again. Um, We don't live our lives like that. Most of our lives are a lack of obvious supernatural. God is still at work. His silence is not his absence. Just because he's hidden, he's still very much engaged with his world. And the third thing I think the the book of Esther does by removing God um, from the pages is it it raises up the the characters even more. So the decisions that the individuals take become very significant. They're highlighted um, because what they do really, really matters if God is apparently absent. So I think those three things are, are particularly raised up in the book. Well, tonight we come to, whether you recognized it or not when it was being read, Uh, The comedic section of the book, this is meant to be funny at Haman's expense, because it's the part of the book which really focuses on how the evil Haman gets his comeuppance, Uh, and that's what we'll look at. Most of our time we're going to focus on him, Uh, but let's, uh, there's a little outline on the back of these sheets, but uh, hopefully it'll help you through. Let's start off then, Uh, we're looking at Esther's robes, Haman's robes, and then the fact that God robes. Let's take those in turn. Esther's robes. Esther's robes of boldness, to put it slightly more fully. Now, uh, let me give you a previously in Esther. Previously in Esther. Um, uh, Where are we in the year? About 480 BC. God's people are in exile. They've been in exile for about 100 years. That is, they were ejected from their homeland, uh, Jerusalem, Israel, because of their disobedience from God. First of all, they they were captured by Babylon, so most of them were in Babylon. But then uh, that empire fell, and the next empire came up, Persian Empire, and uh, that's where they are. Massive empire across three continents, the global superpower of the day. Uh, that's, that's where they are. Uh, chapters 1 and 2, we really meet Esther. Esther rises up from being a peasant girl in the empire to being queen. She is queen of the, peasant, uh, sorry, queen of the Persian Empire, married to uh, King Xerxes. If you remember, if you've been here, he's fickle, he's malleable, he's, he's, he's slightly hopeless, um, but he comes good kind of tonight. Uh, so that Esther married to King Xerxes. In chapter 3, we really meet Haman, who is the villain of the piece. So we meet Haman in chapter 3. He's raised up to become the leading official in the land. He's the prime minister, but he's a deeply insecure prime minister, worried about what everyone thinks of him. Um, uh, And and that's Haman. Uh, He's elevated higher than anyone else, but one person really annoys him, who is Mordecai. And this is when the book starts to uh, speak more clearly. Mordecai, often known as Mordecai the Jew, refuses to bow down to Haman, often called the enemy of the Jews. So there's this conflict set up in the blue corner, Mordecai the Jew, in the red corner, Haman the enemy of the Jews. Haman is furious. Why won't this one man bow down to me? Everyone else does. And so he says, right, oh, he's a Jew, is he right? I'll kill them all. I'll kill them all. And uh, he tosses um, some dice to find out when it'll happen. Eight months' time, on this day, they'll all die. A complete annihilation, a genocide of God's people. So, Mordecai, chapter 4, says to Esther, Esther, you're married to the king, that's useful. Um, Can you speak to him, please, and say, don't do that? Esther says, well, you know, it's a pretty open marriage, this one. You know, the king has hundreds of concubines. I haven't seen him for a month. I'm not flavor of the month. And you don't just go and ask the king for something. You come before the king, two things happen. Most commonly, you get hacked to bits. That's what happens if you come before the king and he doesn't ask you. 
He's surrounded by 12 axemen. There's lots of archaeology showing this. And they'll just chop you to bits. If, you know, if the king is kind, he'll hold out his golden scepter, and that's it, I can come and visit him. So, hey, Mordecai, you know, <laughs> you know you're asking quite a lot. Yes, he says, but what if God has put you here? It isn't not explicit. What if you've been placed in that position for such a time as this? She gulps. At the end of chapter 4, as Mark said, it's left on a cliffhanger. End of chapter 4, verse 16, she says, I'll go. I'll go. Okay, I'll go. If I perish, I perish, but I'll go. So she's going to take a risk to save God's people. She'll put her own life at stake. Now, that's where we got to. It's a cliffhanger, a bit like 24, almost. Um, You know, it ends, and you think, what's the time? Half midnight. Just one more, just one more. Okay. Um, uh, Okay, not just me. Good. Um, That's where we left it. Chapter 5, verse 1. What happens? On the third day, she fasts for three days. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall facing the entrance. This is the moment. So she's put on her robes and she waits. And this is a sort of big Alan Sugar moment, you know, a bit worse than you're fired. It's you're dead. Or uh, come and touch my scepter. Okay, she says, come and touch. The king says, holds out the scepter, the golden scepter, and in she comes, verse 2. Uh, when he, King Xerxes, saw the Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her, held out her golden sep- the golden scepter that was in his hand. Esther approached and touched the tip. Phew, she's in. Now, Esther's robes, chapter 5, verse 1, I think we're meant to see them as robes of boldness. I mentioned this last time. Fourteen times in the book, Esther is called Queen Esther. Thirteen of them are after this event. Chapter 5, verse 1 is the turning point for Esther. This is when she steps up and and takes her life in her hands and says, for the sake of God's people, I'll do it. I'll take a risk. From this point on, she's Queen Esther because she's acting in an honorable, glorious, majestic, worthy of praise way. Esther's robes, I think, are robes of boldness. Then we get this fairly elaborate game of ask the king. Do you see it? I mean, three times this comes up. So verse 3. The king asked, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you. Now, that's very flattering. I mean, it's a sort of orient, um, an oriental exaggeration. He's not really going to get half his kingdom. That'd be ridiculous. But he's saying, oh, you know, interesting, interesting. I, I, I'm impressed by your boldness. I honor you. you know, come on, ask, ask big. And she says, uh, come to dinner tomorrow. Okay. So we get that. Uh, chapter 5, verse 6, same question, same elaborate formulation. Uh, Esther, what is your petition? It will be given to you. What is your request, even up to half the kingdom? Esther's response, chapter 5, verse 7, uh, come to dinner. Uh, eventually, chapter 7, the question gets asked again. Chapter 7, verse 2. Uh, Queen Esther, what do you want? To eat up to half... Now, what is going on here? I mean, has she got a cookery book coming out? Is she trying to sell? I mean, this is... you know. What... What do we make of Esther's procrastination? The truth is, I don't know. I don't know what you make of that. Best guess? Best guess is she's wanting to become, um, to get King Xerxes irritated with Haman. So I think that might be going on. So chapter 5, verse 4, she says, um, If it pleases the king, come for a banquet I have prepared for him. I've prepared a banquet for you, O king. By the time you get to verse 8 of chapter 5, come to the banquet I've prepared for them, 
king and Haman. So it may be, it may be that she's wanting the king to get irritated. Why is Haman always around? This is my wife, she's doing good food, and I, I want... It may be that's what's going on. She may be being clever. We're not, I don't know, that might be it. What is very clear, and I think this is the main point, is this gets Haman very excited. Did you see that in the story? He, you know, he's not only the most important man in the land, bar the king, but it, oh, the queen is inviting me. Ooh, just me and the king. Uh, he's very excited. Let's push on. Haman's robes. Haman's robes of pride. Haman is proud. It comes out most clearly, uh, we're seeing, in, in the middle of chapter 6. He keeps asking for these robes. The king says to him in the middle of chapter 6, uh, we just had it read, um, okay, the king says, uh, you know, what shall I do for the man the king delights to honor? And Haman, verse 7, answers big. Haman, verse 7 of chapter 6. Oh, well, for the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe. The king has worn and a horse. The king has ridden one with a royal crest upon its head. Then let the robe and the horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let the robe, the man the king delights to honor, lead one horse. <laughs> He's getting very excited at this point, you know, because this is all coming to him. But do you see what he's asking? It's extraordinary, really. He says, I want the robes that you wear. I want the horse that you ride with a crown on its head. I, I want to be treated like you, please. When he's asking for robes, it's just a sign of his pride. So what we get here in Haman is possibly the very best case study the Bible gives us on a kind of grasping pride. So don't be like Haman. <laughs> Let's have a look at uh, what goes on here. Um, if you remember, I've told you before, if you've been here, that um, at the centerpiece of the Jewish festival of Purim, which this is the, the background to, um, the festival that comes every year, once a year, the centerpiece of that festival is the Book of Esther is read, uh, as they recall how God delivered them uh, back in the Persian Empire. And whenever Haman's name is read, they stamp their feet, they boo their hiss, they've got these wooden... Um, sort of uh, like football rattles that they, you know, they shake around. It's like pantomime time when Haman comes on the scene because his downfall is funny. It's meant to be funny because his pride is punctured. Three things to notice about Haman's pride. I think that they, uh, we're meant to notice. It's joyless, it's vicious, it's ludicrous. And let me take those in turn. First of all, it's joyless. It's a joyless pride. So chapter 5, verse 9. Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed he neither rose nor showed fear and his presence he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. We go through this elaborate thing where he boasts to his friends about how wonderful he is. But, verse 13, all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. So he's invited to a banquet with the, uh, the king and the queen. He's very excited by that. Um, he went out happy, verse 9, skips down the road. But Mordecai won't bow to him still. Ugh, how annoying for Haman. He was filled with rage in verse 9. So he has to go home and, and sort of puff himself up again. He sort of reinflate his pride. So, he, I mean, this is... I mean, this is, this is Please don't ever do this. He goes home, gets together all his friends and his wife, and tells them how great he is. I mean, that would be a pretty boring dinner party. There's nothing so boring as a bore, is there? 
a bore who obsesses about themselves. I mean, what, you know, it would be dreadful dinner party to be at. It's, but it's very embarrassing. Here is a man who is elevated above everyone else by the king. You know, he's got more titles than Peter Mandelson. You know, he's really elevated up. He is the most significant man by the king in the land. But it's not enough. See, it's not enough for Haman to be important. He has to be seen to be important. He needs to feel or see publicly recognition, acclaim, importance. He has so much, and yet he's pride that one man won't bow down to him. It robs him of all his joy. One thing robs him of all his joy. And that's the nature of pride. Pride is joyless. It's insatiable. It's insecure. So if you, you know, for, the, for when we're proud, life is just a roller coaster. If um, we're in our, in our element and we're at the center of attention, brilliant. Brilliant. And we bask in that and we regale people and we're witty and funny and et cetera, et cetera. But if we're in a certain context and we're not, well, then we clam up, we say nothing, we're resentful, we're joyless. Because pride is fickle, pride is insecure, it goes up and down. So Haman's pride is joyless. It reminds me a little bit of um, you know, the, uh, the film Gladiator, the Russell Crowe, uh, and the, uh, the Emperor Commodus in that. I mean, he's a proud man, but deeply insecure. He is the emperor of the Roman Empire. Um, uh, and yet, it's not enough for him. Maximus appears in Rome, and the people love Maximus. And he's furious. He can't do anything. He's the emperor. He rules over all. But what does he have to do? He has to fight Maximus in the ring on his own. He has to beat this one person one-on-one because he's, he's so fragile. He's so insecure. He has no joy as long as one person resists him. Haman's pride is joyless. That's what pride is like. Uh, secondly, it's vicious. I guess this is obvious. He'll commit murder to satisfy his pride. Uh, So in chapter 5, verse 14, his wife says to him, Darling, I've got a good idea. Why not have a gallows built 23 metres high? And then you hang the man on the the gallows 23 metres high and everyone will see it. I mean, that's ridiculous. I mean, is that the the height of this building? I mean, the the palace in Susa, from the archaeological records, is about 18 metres high. So this is taller than anything else in the city. I mean, that's just crazy. But if you hang a man that high, everyone sees him. Oh, yes, darling, I know. You're slightly insecure, aren't you? Why not hang the man where everyone can see him? Then, of course, your pride will be uh, back on track and you'll be happy. Vicious. And so, of course, he does. He well, I like this. In chapter 6, verse 4, yes, he tries to get Mordecai killed. He goes to see the king just for that reason. Now, Haman is a bit extreme in how vicious he is. But look, that same sentiment, we all have it somewhere. It is the sentiment where... Um, in our workplace, in our place of study, wherever it may be, uh, the boss, filter it for your context, the boss says, um, Billy, he, he's just an outstanding colleague. Have you seen the work he's produced? He's brilliant. And you think, don't like that. Billy's being praised and I'm not. So you say, yeah, yeah, he's, he's, he is very good. Not so popular with the staff. Have you noticed that? And you sort of have to, you know, you have to sort of knock away, chip a little bit, at uh, Billy's reputation, because, you know, it just makes you feel a bit better. As he comes down, you go up. 
That's the sort of commonly what we do. We may not do it out loud, but we may certainly do it in our heads. It's pride, and that's the, the vicious nature of pride. It's fiercely competitive. It's the same pride that we hate corporately or, or, or in groups. The, uh, the miserable rise of the BMP getting some votes, what is that? There's an insecurity there. We feel nervous, we feel threatened, and it can become vicious and violent and unpleasant. It's the same manifestation, just on a group scale. Now, Haman's pride is vicious, and that's what pride is like. So it's joyless, it's vicious, and third little thing, it's ludicrous. It's ludicrous. Now, this is when it gets funny, and we're we're meant to laugh at this. So chapter 6, verse 6, let's spend a bit of time. Chapter 6, verse 6, Haman enters into the king's court. The king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now, we know that's Mordecai the Jew. For Haman, well, he obviously thinks it's him. I mean, chapter 6, verse 6 is, you know, the, um, the second half of it. It's like, it, it's like a Shakespearean play. You know, the, the character sort of leans to the audience and says, well, who could the king want to honor more than me? Wink. And, uh, you know, with dramatic irony, the crowd knows, not you, buddy. <laughs> you're in trouble. It's, I mean, it's meant, we're meant to think, oh, Haman, you're just setting yourself up for a fool here. Yes, he is. And he keeps repeating this phrase. He's obviously so delighted with this phrase. So in verses 7 to 9, he says it three times. Oh, the man the king delights to honor. The man the king delights to honor. The man the king delights to honor. You know, he's got it into his head. It's him. It's him. It's him. He gets so carried away. He's so thrilled with himself. I mean, this is Haman's dream come true. He's so desperate for the acclamation of the crowd. For the, you know, for the cheers. He just envisages himself walking down the streets dressed up as the king. Oh, Yes. It's, you know, there'll be his crowning moment. But verse 10, go at once, the king commanded Haman, get the robe, the horse, and do just as you've suggested for uh, the man you hate, <laughs> the one that makes you furious, your enemy, the one you're trying to kill. Now, the king doesn't know all that, but we do. Do it for him. Now, there's something very funny about pride when it's pricked, because pride is it's pathetic. It makes you want to laugh. I was in a, a, a Cafe Nero this week on Curzon Street. Some of you know I, I give them a lot of free advertising. It's where I do most of my work. They give me free coffee every now and again. Um, but uh, I was in there, and uh, it, was, it was just the bloke, the bloke sat down on the table next to me. There two blokes. Uh, I was a little bit scruffy. They were um, in their you know, very wide pinstripes, uh, very full of themselves. And there was a load of rubbish on their table, and they just plonked it on my table when I was sat there. Now, I was just so surprised, I just roared with laughter. <laughs> I mean, that's just so rude, isn't it? I mean, how full of yourself must you be to do that? And I just looked at the bloke and roared with laughter. And I, I mean, this wasn't the best thing to say, I confess. It wasn't a very good thing to say. I just said, that's funny. <laughs> and um, just picked the stuff up and took it to the bin. I just... I, that's just, that's just really odd, isn't it? It's bizarre. Now, very easy to laugh at someone else. Can we laugh at our own pride? Or actually, that's quite hard, isn't it? To, to laugh at ourselves. To put our hand in the air and say, yeah, I'm pretty ridiculous. Because instinctively we want to defend our reputations. To do that, that's quite hard. How do we get beyond that? Uh, last thing. 
God robes. God robes with salvation. Verb. Okay, verb. Esther's robes, noun, noun, verb. God robes. It's what he does. God robes with salvation. He is the one who grants praise and honor. Let's take another look at chapter 6. Now, there's a reason we had it read as we did. So Phoebe read the Esther bits. Richard read the bits in the middle. Chapter 6 is God's chapter. Because silently, invisibly, he dominates it. Do you notice in chapter 6, the heroes of the book, Esther, she's just out of chapter 6, just doesn't appear at all. Mordecai, he's there, but he's completely passive. All he does is get plonked on a horse and then goes and plonks himself by the gate again. We don't hear him doing anything. You know, the, sort of, the leading characters, the leading heroes, they're, they're taken out. So that we think, well, who's driving the action here? It's God. Silently, he dominates. Chapter 6 is the hinge of the book. So at this point, everything's been going very, very bad for God's people. Now, it starts to turn around. Silently, God is dominating what's going here. So chapter 6, verse 1. Um, uh, that night, the king couldn't sleep. Literally, the sleep of the king fled. So what does he do? What do you do when you've got no sleep? You get out a history book. And... Um, no, don't do that. The, um, uh, what do the attendants read about? His attendants, what do they read? They just so happened to read about Mordecai saving the king's life, which is fortunate, wouldn't you say? And, um, wow, what a coincidence. Quick thinks the king, I need to do something. It's very good to reward people who save your life. That's good, and then more people might try and do it. So, uh, quick, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Well, um, uh, who's, who's around to, uh, who's around? Oh, Haman's outside, really? Goodness, it's the middle of the night. Um, okay, uh, bring Haman in. Oh, the irony. Um, and Haman describes a fantastic reward for the man the king delights to honor. Now, it's quite a lot of coincidences. King can't sleep. Reads about the fact the bloke who's going to be killed the next day saved his life and he hadn't realized it. And... Um, Let's have someone outside who's incredibly vainglorious and, and wants some, who's going to come up with this elaborate reward, thinking it's for himself, which goes to Mordecai. It's just, it's just a lot of coincidences. Esther's gone. Mordecai's passive. This is God at work. Look at how the chapter is topped and tailed. It's quite interesting. Chapter 5, verse 13. Um, uh, I, I have no pleasure because that Jew, Mordecai, says uh, Haman, chapter 513, that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. So what do his wife and friends say to him? Well, I'll build a gallows and have him killed. That's their advice. At the beginning of the chapter, end of the chapter, uh, chapter 6, verse 14. Oh, sorry, chapter, uh, chapter 6, verse 13. Haman tells Zeresh, his wife and his friends, same crowd, what's happened to him. And his advisor said to him, well, since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You'll surely come to ruin. Their advice at this point, hmm, you're stuffed. Now, why have they changed their minds? They knew that Mordecai was a Jew back in chapter 5. But at the end of God's chapter, chapter 6, they say, you've got no chance. Oh, Mordecai's a Jew, you've got no chance. He's one of God's people. Do you see what's happened? They've realized, even if we haven't in chapter 6, look, God's at work. You can't stop this, Haman. There's been divine intervention here. God's at work. 
You, you, sorry, darling. Um, can I have the house? Because you're going to die. And that's basically what she's saying. Even if Haman's family realized that in chapter 6, God is at work. This is God's chapter. God has decided that Mordecai will be robed and get the honor and the glory. And Haman, well, he gets his comeuppance. Three things as we close. Uh, the first is this, I, uh, just to repeat. God is at work even when he's hidden. It's the main application of the book. It screams at us. It screams out uh, from uh, chapter 6. God has turned the tables on Haman and begun, not completed, we'll see that next week, but begun the work of delivering his people. God silently, invisibly, dominates this chapter. God is at work even when he's hidden. Second thing, we need God to robe us with salvation. See, for you and me, we don't need delivering from Haman. There's no Haman around. We do need delivering from our sin. We do need delivering from the fact that we've rejected God and deserve punishment. We need deliverance from that. Because actually, unless, we have, unless we're delivered from that, we have an eternity of justice and punishment waiting us. We need deliverance from that. And God delivers. We need God to robe us with salvation. This becomes very, very clear by the time you get to the end of the Bible. Uh, the book of Revelation, this, sort of, this picture it becomes quite uh, frequent and dominant. So uh, people who don't know Jesus, unbelievers in the book of Revelation, are naked or filthy. Christians, people who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, are clothed. They're given white robes, washed and given to them by Jesus Christ. Just a picture, of, I mean, it's a picture, remember. But we need to be given robes. We need that to be given to us. It's a gift. It's a gift. I mean, it's a striking one. It's a familiar one. I was, um, again, a couple of days later, sat in my favorite place on, on Curzon Street, happened to look up at the Washington Hotel, nice hotel opposite, and there was a man in the window of one of the front rooms uh, smoking a cigarette completely naked. Completely <laughs> naked. Um, and uh, obviously he just thought, I'm in my hotel room. I've just had a, I don't know, um, a shower and completely naked. Um, and uh, eventually he sort of wandered away and uh, I thought, oh, gosh, how embarrassing for him. Anyway, he'll never know. Twenty minutes later, he came in. <laughs> Again, he was loud, he was brash, he was full of himself. But you know what? When it's hard to take someone seriously. <laughs> Hard to take someone seriously in that condition. We need to be robed. We need to be robed. See, the essence of sin is a grasping pride. Like Haman, I need to grasp for myself royal robes. I need to grasp for myself honor and status and recognition. The essence of sin is grasping pride. The essence of salvation is grateful thanks. I'm naked, morally. I'm filthy, spiritually. I need to be clothed. And when we trust in Jesus Christ, we do get clothed. Again, in the language of the Bible, we get clothed in robes of righteousness. 
Even though morally we're naked, spiritually we're filthy, Jesus gives us his robes, his perfection, his status. He says, put these on. And now you've got those on, you can come before the king. You can come before my father. And he'll honor you. And he'll recognize you. And he'll love you. Because I've given you my robes. See, Haman demonstrates for us grasping pride. Salvation is a grateful thanks. I need robes, God. Will you clothe me? Third little thing as we finish. We need those robes eternally. (laughs) We need those robes for heaven. But we need those robes now as well. Because here is the approval we need. See, God gives us our royal robes. He gives us our position, acclaim, recognition. He gives us that status of acceptance from him. He gives those to us. They're a gift. And says, now you can laugh at yourself. Now you can laugh at your pride. Because I've given you what you need. I've given you the recognition that you desire. I've given you the status that you need to wander out into the world. So you can now laugh at what other people say. You can laugh at your own pride and stupidity and just say, I'm an idiot. But it's all right, because God's verdict upon me, that's the one that matters. See, we do need approval of others. We can't live without it. But to have the approval of the most worthy, to have the love of the most lovely, to have the robes of the most regal, to have that verdict, that approval, that means we can go out into the world and laugh at our pride. Because his is the verdict, the the decision that matters. So we can throw aside our grasping pride, come to him with grateful thanks, and live that way. Let's pray together. Our loving Father, we thank you that even though this is a strange story, in many ways the situation is so familiar to us. Many of us here are your people. And yet we, we, we can't see you at work. We sometimes doubt, we wonder, are you there? Are you active? Are you involved? So thank you for the encouragement, the reassurance that even if you may seem hidden, you are very active, that your silence is not your absence. And thank you that you give us what we need most of all. You give us robes of salvation. You give us the righteousness that we need to stand before you. And we pray that knowing that, knowing your verdict upon us, That would liberate us from our silly pride. We'd learn to laugh at ourselves. And we would live for your praise, your honor, for the sake of your name. Amen. Now, uh, next week we'll finish off the book of Esther. Um, It's an interesting story. If you've had questions, wondered what's been going on, um, curious about some of the things that have been said, email in this week, admin at thebibletalks.org, or um, you can bring your questions next week. And um, after next week's sermon, we'll spend some time uh, taking some of those questions.